This is Rock and Roll Grad School with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. They're available for birthday parties and dirty deeds done dirt cheap. So, hello, really kitties. Weird. Yeah. Hello, kitties. We're, we're going to have a good time together, <laughs> Heidi, regardless of my problems. I know, regardless of my problems. We have uh, Sarah Borges on the show, which is a delight, not only because she sings about Watertown, Massachusetts, but it doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt at all. No. She uh, has a new record called uh, Together Alone. That's a lovely little album that we talk about that. We talk Mm -hmm. about quarantine. We talk about driving music. We go into all sorts of things. Wow, you just totally ruined everything cool about our conversation because you said we talked about quarantine and driving music. I know. Well, cheer up, kitties. This is, I don't know. This <laughs> way better than the way Luke phrased it. The, the interview is way better than I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of driving and speaking of trucks. Yes. I feel like we need to talk about Ram Ranch. Are you familiar with this? I am not. Okay. So as, as you are well aware, and I, I hope the listeners as well, not a political show. Correct. But the um, you have, uh, no doubt in Michigan, heard about the, the Canadian trucker protest over various yeah, things. It's, it's, it's not great. Here, yeah. So um, the, the people organizing this uh, chat uh, use a, an app, and we're getting to music in a second. We're getting there. Use an app called mm-hmm. Zello. Not Zillow, okay. which where you can look up the land values of these truckers, but Zillow. Yes. It's one of these encrypted, no one can figure out who you are stuck. Um, and so while they were uh, putting this all together, everybody was joining in, offering their two cents on how to do this. And then can't comes a song. Eighteen naked cowboys in the showers at Ram Ranch. Big Cox So there is a group, hashtag Ram Ranch Resistance. And again, we are not a political show. No, we are But there is a gentleman who uh, grew up in Canada and I think now lives in Florida. Um, in 2002, I believe it was. Uh, he writes a lot of, or sorry, 2012. Hot he writes a lot of gay-themed dance yard. music, let's say that, it's okay? Yeah, and if, if you do a look on his Spotify, you'll see it gets a little explicit. And yeah. there is a huge group of people who have sometimes outnumbered the people who are gathered on these apps to talk about what they want to talk about. But again, not a political show. They can talk about whatever they want. And these people then just start sending in and posting and sharing clips from the Ram Ranch video, audio from Ram Ranch. And the song came out in 2012. It went viral in 2016. And somebody asked him to do a sequel. Wow. The quote from Rolling Stone is, at first I was like, that's like Pink Floyd putting out Dark Side of the Moon 2. Uh, okay. Um, and then he says, but I figured if George Lucas can put out Star Wars 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, I can put out Ram Ranch 2. Fair. He has now written 
541 versions of Ram Ranch, How including one. Possible? I don't know. He's he's is a that hard one worker. for every protester. I hope, but basically, the protesters using Ram Ranch as their launching point uh, have basically shut down some of these groups and made them move somewhere else or just gotten them so frustrated that they just say never mind wow so you want to talk about the power of music that that'll you, do it you got to go to the ram ranch you clearly do So from your first record, when I heard you name check Watertown, I was like, this is my music. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very, it's kind of a nondescript place, but it just fit perfectly in the rhyme scheme. Yeah. What is it, do you think, I feel like Boston always gets the short shrift where everyone's always, oh, you should go to New York. You should go to LA. Oh, yeah. Detroit, just calm down over there. The I corner. was waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you just specifically left us off the list because you know we're the best music town. But I, I guess, why haven't you tried somewhere else? Obviously, Boston's awesome, but is there is there a reason you sort of are, are staying there? You know, at first I think it was because I needed to build something somewhere and Boston was easier than New York for sure. And then as I got older, you know, my family is important to me and I have a 10 year old. So, and I'm divorced and his dad lives apart from us. So as I started to put down roots more and more, it became harder to leave, you know, and I suppose I could have done the great upheaval and really tried hard to make it happen. But, you know, Boston is also easier to get to, um, you know, I guess if you're coming from England, that's really mm, the only for sure. <laughs> True. Yeah. And <laughs> there's something important. I feel like th- there's something kind of gritty in a lot of your music that sort of fits nicely with the city. And maybe I'm just overly romanticizing it all. Well, where are you from in Massachusetts? I grew up in Newton. Okay. Okay. No, that's okay. We, so not not gritty is what I'm saying. Not gritty. <laughs> nice. You know, uh, lovely. You yes. Know. Um, I'm from Taunton, Mass. And so, okay. you know, it's a little bit different, I think, um, than where I live now, which is Arlington. And it's much more, it was a, a cruddy place to live, I think. And I couldn't wait to leave, you know, and not because the people there are bad. It's just that for opportunities that I wanted for myself and that my family wanted for me, I kind of had to get out. This record, you wrote all by yourself a lot. Yeah, well, it was like, lockdown time you know right. so wasn't a heck of a heck of heck else left to do besides like sit and ruminate on the thing that was happening to us and then I guess because I write songs I sort of it filtered down into that you know it's interesting because I feel like so many people started the lockdown and the pandemic by saying I'm writing my novel I'm doing this thing you actually did it how, how long <laughs> that just seems like no one does it, that. 
I didn't think I was doing it when I was doing it, you know, like I think we got to seven songs and then I said to Eric Gamble, who pr was producing the record, like, I guess I better just write three more and then we'll have ourselves a record. But it, I just kept turning them out. I think because there was no pressure, it was much easier than having to work against a deadline. I feel I get so nervous when those things are put upon me. <laughs> Did you find that your, your style, did you, was it, um, did you tend to say like, okay, I'm going to write between these hours or was it just because you didn't have anywhere else to go? It was much more just, yeah, it's coming to me today and not tomorrow. I totally treated it like a job because, you know, my son lives with his dad some of the time. And so I tried to use that time every time to sit and at least work on an idea or refine something that I already had. So yeah, because I, I wasn't doing anything else. So I felt like I had to just keep moving forward somehow. Yeah. I, it's crazy. I don't know. It's such, it's so fascinating to me. Like obviously we're huge music fans, but being able to, to craft the piece to then perform and pull all together is like such an amazing talent that I think is underrated in some ways. There's a lot of steps to it. And I think one of the other things that sort of doesn't get noticed is that, like until you get to a certain level, you just have to do all the business stuff too. And it's boring and I'm not naturally good at it or the self-promotion end. And there's all these facets that when you do get to a certain status, you have people that do it and are really good at it. But for now, it's like, I have a wonderful label. So I'm so lucky there. And they have a lot of folks that help me. But some of the stuff I'm like, cut and paste and Google drive and what I'm doing here, you know? I noticed on the liner notes, you said that, uh, or I think it was your producers that you worked in a very seventies style with sort of everything's in one, uh, one song at a time. Yeah. It, was that different than how you normally cut records? Where'd you cut this album? So most of the stuff we did, I did it at home. Um, and I had, you know, and then what would happen is I would make a song, you know, and then I, Eric Campbell, I would send it to him after I'd recorded it on my phone. And then we'd figure out using a metronome. Well, what's the tempo? Then we'd find a drummer somewhere. You know, we had a drummer in Nashville or a drummer in New York or. And the we'd world's send lousy with drummers. <laughs> yeah. We'd send them what we had so far. Um, they play drums to it and then it would be time to have someone play bass, you know, from afar. And, but most of the acoustic guitar and vocals, I just did at home in my closet. We go to the studio and we block out the time and we do the bass and drums first, you know, because it takes a long time and you'd like to get those live with the band and then you'll overdub the guitars and the vocals and all that other stuff. But you kind of do all the bass and drum tracks at once for every song you're working on more of the record than specific songs one at a time so that's what Eric meant you know we took each song and because we didn't have a deadline we kind of just did it until it was done and then set it aside and we kept going and until we were done usually you know you're demoing stuff in your home just like you said putting it on your phone and I feel like a lot of musicians always talk about when they get in the studio trying to match the energy and the emotion that is in that demo did it help you in this instance to be at your home, at your closet where you were recording this stuff initially? Yeah, because you, no one's there to hear the horrible mistakes you're going to make as you try things, you know? So I think I tried like 
both songwriting wise and lyrically and singing wise and guitar wise, I tried things I wouldn't normally have done because there was no one there to tell me no or to laugh. And I'm sure no one I know would do that anyway, but my self-editor is so strong that it was nice to turn it off for a while, knowing that there would be no one around. We've talked to a lot of people, obviously, who've who've (laughs) been in similar situations of trying to record things during this time we're in and from people all over the world participating. At some point, obviously, we're going to live with this stuff forever, but at some point, things are going to shift to being more in person again. Do you think there are elements of the recording process that have sort of come to be during this time that will stay? Or like you said, like that, that ability to just record it yourself in the closet and and self, you know, edit is that, do you think those things might stick around or are there elements that you might miss going back into the full on studio environment? You know, I think I taught myself the lesson when I made this record that I can do things I didn't think I could do before. So I'm hoping that knowledge will stay with me next time around and I will be less afraid to try new things, you know. Um, I don't know what we'll do. It's always dependent upon money. And that's a big one for musicians, you know, and timing and everything else. But I think the preference always is to get the whole band into one room and play together because that's where the good stuff happens. And I feel like your records, usually that sound of the band comes together. And I don't know if you record, usually record with everyone in one room, but it has that vibe and that feel of live. Yeah, we usually do do it all together in one room. And, you know, in the past when I had had, I had the broken singles and that was a fixed unit. I had the same guys for many years and the bass player Banky still remains in the broken singles, but this isn't a broken singles record. It's just a solo record. And part of the reason I did that is, you know, one, we did record it apart. So in a very extreme way, and also none of the broken singles guys, um, you know, sort of participated in the recording. And I felt like these songs were a little bit of a departure for me anyway. So it felt more comfortable to call it a solo record. But were it to be another Broken Singles record, I think it's always my preference to have everyone together. Was it more freeing to your writing, knowing that you didn't need to sort of write to these musicians or these instruments that you could kind of do anything you wanted? Yeah, because some of the songs I thought might just remain acoustic songs. You know, I didn't know if they would ever need to be translated into a rock song. Because when I write a song, typically I have an eye towards what it would look like in a full band situation, but I didn't do that this time. So it was really freeing, you know, plus coupled with that whole no one's around kind of thing. But I wrote some real clankers, like the worst songs ever in the process. And even some like lyrics that, you know, the songs ended up on the record, but with new, better lyrics. But oh yeah, it was not like all like, Susie cream cheese here, like <laughs> serious potholes. <laughs> Those are the ones that you'll go back to years from now and be like, this was brilliant. Why didn't I put oh. this on? The I know. And the recording exists somewhere, you know, it's always fun to go and look back at what you did and either decide to do it again or definitely not do it. Right. Again. Like, nope, this is just yeah. going to stay here in the vault. Yes, to be seen. <laughs> when you're uh, you're you're known for obviously kind of crossing genres and having influences from across a billion different 
um, genres themselves too. So your fan base, I'm assuming, comes from all of those fan bases as well. Right. In writing this particular album, again, because you're taking a departure, you're doing some things a little bit differently. Did you look more to try to attract a whole new fan base as a solo artist or trying to really still cater to your, your more traditional fans? So it's hard to write a song on demand, you know, to say, like, I want, like, a, a rock and roll song like the Rolling Stones or whatever. There were a couple instances on the record. There's a song about being a lady truck driver yes. because I take a side job as a courier, an airport Amazing. courier. So, you know, I started driving, like, these ridiculous places with just a big, huge band bands, And Roscoe was like, you should write a song about that. So I really tried on that one. But... I, you know, I think it's probably been our downfall over all this time that we just don't stick in one particular genre and it's hard to, but I also think we're starting to see, you know, artists like Jason Isbell are a perfect example where they really do run the gamut and people are more accepting of that because now that streaming is the norm, you can listen to, you know, a reggae song and a rock song and a country song in the yeah. same 15 minutes. So Hopefully things are start the tides turning my way now. <laughs> yes, I would agree. And I would hope so, but I would think so too. It feels that yeah. way. It's a Everything. much better way to be. Yeah. Like I, you know, I when I started playing music, it was the 90s and everybody in Boston was getting signed and indie rock was the most popular kind of music. And it made me believe that anybody could play, you know, yeah. but you really could do whatever you wanted. So I'm starting to see 90s fashion come back. So I'm hoping yeah. we're going to that now. <laughs> yeah, I will be much more excited about the music than the fashion's return. <laughs> stressing me out. <laughs> Some of it, I'm like, it wasn't good the first time. Nope. Not, yeah. not, nope. I couldn't pull anything off except docks and a baby doll dress. That's the only 90s fashion that I ever could pull off. Yeah, this, the high-heeled <laughs> flip-flops like, or the jelly oh, shoes. Yes. I can't. Mm-mm. Nope. Glad we cleared that. Yes, Yes. that was important. (laughs) (laughs) This is why Luke doesn't let me talk. (laughs) (laughs) In in your couriering career, is that a good place for you to write songs? It seems like there's a lot of time on the road, or is that just your your mind's elsewhere? I think if I think I heard the first part of the question right, you were saying being home is that a good place to write songs? Like no, I was saying being a courier. Courier. Uh, you know, you think a lot because you're alone. I drove the overnight shift the other night, and like the first six hours of it, I did some hardcore thinking and listening to music. And you come to a lot of realizations that I think help you write because you're just alone staring at the highway. You know, that's why there's so many truck driving songs because it's very, it's a very meditative state if you can get into it. But you know, sometimes I'm so fried with what I'm trying to do for that job that it doesn't help. But I think I definitely draw on the thoughts I have when I'm sort of in that zone of driving for six or eight hours at a clip, you know. What do you listen to at when you're driving? You know, I do this radio show um, on Gimme Country and it's at first I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Thankfully, they're really nice, but I was a radio major in college. I went to Emerson College and I worked at the station there, WERS, and I really liked it, you know, and I got a degree and everything, but I never used it. 
So I'm always on the lookout for songs for my show. And I, I try to listen to as much new music as possible. I Spotify is horrible. It's horrible for artists. And I think we all know it, but that's what there is. You know, that's what, what there is right now. So I, I listen to so much music when I'm driving. I do use Spotify because it's something I can stream while I'm driving. And it's interesting how, like, when I've chosen my favorite NRBQ record, they'll pull me up some, like, Brinsley Schwartz record that I might like. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I do really like this. So I'm so drawn in. I feel so terrible and conflicted about it. I think we when all speaking do. of like as an as just as an as an audience, as a listener, as a just a fan. We're all conflicted by it because we all get sucked in and it is a great way to, but we know that the artists we love aren't benefiting the way they should be. We're yeah. to figure it out, solve the problem. Yeah. And the dude who like owns Spotify, he's not even a musician, you know, I right. just kept me. Uh. I know. Well, and speaking of NRBQ, you're able to call on a few good folks to to play on the record which also seems like again when it's not a band record you you need people to to play how did you kind of decide who to reach out to and and ask to play on the album you know eric amble has a really good rolodex and so he kind of knows all the folks that are great at what they do but um one of the things that i've done in the past is that outlaw country cruise you know and Mm -hmm how I met like the Bottle Rockets and NRBQ and Warner Hodges and everything. And it's really like this sort of tribal experience where the people you meet on the boat, you just love forever. So when it came time for that wreck for the record to be made, Eric and I had a lot of conversations about what drummer would be most appropriate. The problem wasn't finding somebody, it was picking somebody. So we were just so fortunate. I was going to ask about that cruise because I mean, the lineup for this year is amazing yeah, as per usual. And it's, you always hear musicians talk about the fact that they don't get to hear anybody else play because they're on the road and suddenly you're on a ship. You've gone to the buffet already. You just can actually go hear other bands play. That's got to be a great way to interact with these people who you have so much in common with, but you never, your paths never cross. It's a really unique experience. I, I fell into it because of Eric Campbell. And every time I go, I'm like, I'm so damn lucky. But the first time I went, I tried to stand on the drum set during our big finale. <laughs> fell off. And oh, I no. landed behind the amp and everyone cheered and I got up and it was great. And then I tripped over my guitar and broke the dang headstock off of it. It was oh, a fear, no. but it made me really memorable. You know, and then I made a lot of new fans that way. And it's unique because it's, it's, there are a lot of people that want to go. It's not for the faint of pocketbook. Um, it's sponsored by Sirius XM radio. So the DJs and the folks that work there have a really serious hand in sort of deciding who's going to be on it. And then also it's a chartered ship. So the company six man that runs it, they charter out the whole boat. So you really can do whatever the heck you want. Um, but because people have to pay a lot of money, there's just not a lot of like drunken idiots falling down or people behaving badly. 
no one really goes to the restaurants. There's shows from like 11 a.m. till 1 a.m. It's just there's they drain the pool so you can stand in it to watch the show. Perfect. And I think it goes to what we were saying about Spotify. It's a curated lineup. It is yeah. not an algorithm of you might like this band. Mm-hmm. No. And the way I got on it, there's a song on the record, the new record called You Got Me on the Boat, but they're they announced the first wave of line of the lineup for this year. And I wasn't on it, you know, and I figured I'd just take my lumps. I've been on it a couple of years now already, and I, I can miss a year. Um, but there is this movement afoot on their Facebook page for the cruisers. And they really pushed hard for me. And it made me feel so good. It made me feel so good. So when we were getting the record together, Roscoe was like, you know, or Eric Gamble was like, you should write them a song to thank them. And he was so right, you know, because how many hundred or thousand people that wrote in to the Facebook group, like it worked because the next time they announced the rest of the lineup, I was on it. So it's just like, it's a magical experience. That's almost, that's better than being announced first up. I know, I know, you know, you feel like, because going into the shows or the cruise, you, you're, it's yours to lose, you know, like you're already set up for success. Everyone wants you to do well. There's no pressure or anything. Everyone's there for a good reason. So that's just the plum thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you taking the broken singles out with you for this album? Are they, are you trying to adapt it to, for their uh, particular set of skills? I think the touring band for this will be Eric Campbell, Keith Ogley from the Bottle Rockets, and drummer TBA. We're not sure yet. And it may be multiple drummers depending upon where we are, but um, we're going to try and stick with the core of the band that was on the record. And there'll be some local Boston shows that are broken single shows and we'll really, you know, get into the back catalog. But I think we're going to try and stay like on message, as they say. <laughs> record almost in entirety and use the band that was on it and stuff. Together Alone, the new album by Sarah Borges is available this Friday wherever you get your records. For more information for tour dates, including the Outlaw Country Cruise, check out her website, sarahborges.com. You can check us out on all the various socials. Be sure to visit our website at rockandrollgradschool.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. Today's show is produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant producers are John Survey and Sandy Stone. Willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This one's for Philippe. Thank you, good night, and may all your favorite bands stay together. Stay together.